the long-awaited return of one of the most legendary names in Neo-Soul. The reflective resurrection of a beloved rock god, and the redemption remix of an artist who rose like a phoenix from the ashes of musical virality. You're listening to Themes and Variation. Themes and Variation is a podcast about music and perspectives brought to you by Soundfly. I'm your host, Mahaya Lee. It's been a while, but we're back. Most of us, anyway. If you've heard the show before, you'll notice the absence of the rich baritone timbre belonging to former host Carter Lee, who moved onto something quite literally greener earlier this year when he accepted a full-time job in the golf industry and left me the rather daunting task of attempting to fill his size 11 shoes with my size 6 feet. That said, it turns out the host's seat is pretty comfortable, and I'm absolutely thrilled about this new season of Themes and Variation. Just like before, each show will be centered around a unique theme that's open to the interpretations of that episode's panelists, musicians and music lovers who bring all sorts of knowledge, experience, and perspectives to the table. In this episode, you'll hear from the show's new home panel, Martin Fowler, Jeremy Young, and of course, yours truly. Before we get into that, I have a quick favor to ask. If you love what you hear or just want to send a little encouragement to me and the rest of the team, please subscribe to the show and consider leaving a positive review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you go for podcasts. Your support and enthusiasm will help us keep this thing going. All right, let's get into the episode, Comeback Songs. Welcome back to Themes and Variation, Soundfly's podcast about music and perspectives. Joining me today are Martin Fowler and Jeremy Young, two former frequent guests who are going to be playing a more pivotal role in the show moving forward. How are you guys doing today? Fantastic. I'm great. How are you, Mahia? I'm doing really well. And that's in part because we are talking about comeback songs, which is pretty on the nose, what with this being our comeback episode and all. Um, your song selection process, what was the like for you guys this time? Tricky? Not so tricky? It was tricky because there are so many obvious choices. Blaze them on me. What were the obvious choices? You know, the, the very first thing I thought when you said comeback was, don't call it a comeback. Which, if you Google comeback songs, it's like the top of basically every list but that's like the opposite of a comeback <laughs> there was that there's an incredible baseline to a luther vandross song called comeback mm. by uh marcus Ooh. miller that is like one of my favorite slap baselines of all time there's a song that is recorded by pete seeger that I have on vinyl, you know, Pete Seeger lived in the town I live in, in the Hudson Valley, and mm -hmm. was a big mm. proponent of returning the Hudson River to its natural glory after General Electric came in and um, completely polluted the river in the 40s through the 70s. Oh, keep it light, Marty. Turns out that that song doesn't, isn't actually on the internet, so it's not what? really fair for me to bring what? <laughs> that What's song. What's it called? I know, right? It's called uh, Love Our River Again. I definitely just thought about Baby Come Back, also Come Back Baby. Baby, 
For a second, I thought that we were on a completely different pod, and I was going to do Baby Got Back. Which could have gotten a little hot, a little too weird. A little too hot, a little too fast. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> my mind went to like like soundtracks. I kind of wanted to do like Rocky because Eye of the Tiger, I think, yeah. I could be wrong, but Eye of the Tiger maybe debuted in Rocky. But that, I don't know if I would really consider that a comeback. And I also thought about Rudy. For a quick second, I went to like Snoop Lion. <laughs> to try to maybe talk about his like quote unquote failed comeback as like a Rastafarian yeah. re- is that a rebrand. Or is that just an entirely different career? Right. Or just a misguided attempt to reach a new audience or something. I was yeah. like, eh, it might have been a marketing thing. I don't quite understand that. But then I found my pick and I'm like pretty happy with it. So, um, yeah, I was lost and now I'm found. And so I came back. Excellent. Marty, we'll go ahead and start with your selection. Oh, yeah. So, Marty, what were we listening to? This is Really Love, the long, long awaited comeback of D'Angelo after mm-hmm. a 13 year gap between records. Ooh. Wow. Yeah, a lot of people were. We're not sure that he was going to come back. Um, Mm -hmm. That's what came to mind when I thought about artists' comeback stories was how happy I know I was and how happy so many musicians in particular I know were to hear some some new stuff from this singular genius of our era. And uh, he really delivered. It was a record that was incredibly well-timed in its actual release because it spoke so much to a lot of the social upheaval in America at the time. It was around um, the era of Ferguson, the era of uh, Eric Garner. Uh, It spoke to a lot of the contemporary state of racial and class and other divisions, uh, especially racial, but definitely intersectional divisions throughout life in the U.S. And um, this track in particular is is more of a classic uh, D'Angelo romantic (laughs) bedroom classic, if you will. It's a sexy track. Yeah. Those are the two sides of this record, I feel like. Um, mm. You know, that's a lot of what people were expecting from him from all of his earlier tracks. Certainly some cool, sexy vibes, uh, but also some some really interesting tracks on this record. This one in particular has some really incredible string arrangements by Brent Fisher up top and throughout. This one won Best R&B Song at the 58th Annual Grammy Awards, um, mm. was a chart hit, was a critical darling, uh, remains one of his most popular songs, even though uh, some of his earlier stuff remains the best known of his work. It's a really groovy track with a deep pocket and just um, really came to bring back and redefine what Neo Soul was. Mm. He's kind of the king of Neo Soul in some ways. So mm. There was an early version of this track leaked 
in 2007 by Questlove on uh, Australia's Triple J radio, which is their like big, you know, sort of cutting edge radio station, essentially. Triple J, J exclusive, exclusive from Questlove. Didn't get this from me. It wasn't done, and certainly D'Angelo didn't think it was done, but like pretty similar to what we ended up hearing on the record. In this version, it's all demos, and D'Angelo, super talented multi-instrumentalist, played all of those parts himself. Wow. In that version, it's not quite the same. You know, he went into the studio. He brought in Questlove to actually lay down the drums. He brought in Pino Palladino to replay that bass line, but on his, you know, 1961 P bass. But at the same time, like the the core of the idea was was present and it just took a really long time for D'Angelo to actually feel good about letting it out into the world. So in 2001, he kind of started falling off. It's kind of the last time he toured in the early 2000s. It really had a tough time with being like a sex symbol in the public eye and famously sort of had to recede from the public view for a long time. Uh, His record funding got pulled. He had to move where he was going to release the record a couple of times and being sort of a a known perfectionist as well. Mm. Like he's in there like making his own keyboard synth patches, like uh, programmers who would program for Stevie Wonder, or he's trying to work in the vein of Prince of really being the singular talent behind every note that you hear. He's totally capable of it, but he also is uh, deeply plagued by the perfectionism that accompanies that. Right. People sometimes forget that the songs that go on a first album, you may have been cultivating for your entire life up to that point. And then something does well, and it's like, we'll give us something next year. And you can't put the same kind of love and care into that necessarily. And I think that's really hard for a lot of artists who have more of like an artiste disposition. Oh, terror yeah. and stuff. I mean, in D'Angelo's case, it's so interesting that he's like that. We've known this about him for so many years, but like, the music just sounds so relaxed. Yeah. This song in particular, I think, shows his chops in a lot of ways. And his taste, frankly, mm-hmm. like his aesthetic taste. Like, you know, this idea of like redefining neo-soul that you were talking about, Marty. Like, I mean, maybe he wears it as a badge of pride that he sort of was like the poster child for that. Uh, him and Erica Badu and Questlove, The Roots, whatever. But yeah. like, it just feels like he's... Interested in redefining what it is and also saying, like, well, screw this, like, genre title. Like, let me do my thing. Yeah. Just the idea that he could be a perfectionist and also just lay down these grooves that sound so, like, smooth and silky. If I do anything where I get that perfectionist bug, everything just sounds so gritty and tight. The gritty, like, G-R-I-D uh, dash Y. Well, oh, gritty. Okay. <laughs> like, there's just no, like, human feeling if I get, like, a perfectionist, like, itch to me. It, it, yeah. So, huh. yeah. Well, it's like a nuance and an attention to detail thing, right? Like, it would be really easy when you have access to strings to just be like, well, strings mm. are going to be all over the place and they're going to be thick and they're going to be overwhelming, but they're just in there, like, enough that you forget this is an entirely different family of instruments. The drums, like, they have a laid-back feel, but it, it's like the Dilla thing. It's not sloppy. It's, like, perfectly off the grid. There's a little snippet on the internet of Questlove describing 
sort of his understanding of the Dilla laid back mm. vibe, which is like taking the hi-hats and just like pushing them back in time. The style of playing, especially from Questlove in the, on these kinds of records in particular, he knows exactly where to place those things in relation to each other. There's more breath in that too, you know? Mm. Like we spend so much time training ourselves to play perfectly on a grid, which like mm. it can be pretty lifeless and this kind of feel is putting that human quality back in. Which becomes yeah. really hard if you've trained yourself to play right on the dot for such a long time. Totally. And that bass line, too. I mean, the bass line, it, it, it's got this incredibly behind-the-beat mm. kind of feel. But it also is so consistent with itself. You know, it's just eighth notes, basically. Dum, 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 dum. And it's like in such a clear metronomic pocket with itself mm. but in relation to the beat incredibly behind so you get this real propulsiveness but you kind of feel like you can just sit back into it at the mm -hmm. same time It's not like a grandiose coming back story where it's like, I'm going to drop this record. I've been working on it forever, but like, just like play the record, you know? It speaks for itself. And I think there's a cinematic quality to this track in particular, the idea of like that intro, you know, it doesn't really feel like you're in the same room as the rest of the song. Like it sort of feels mm -hmm. like you're kind of walking around in Harlem a little bit, you know, kind of going mm -hmm. into these different like shops and storefronts or whatever. And then you, you sort of wander into the back room and there's this little like tight groove happening. There's like a visual aspect to like listening to this that um, with regards to the theme, like, you know, this comeback thing, the message is sort of like, I've taken a circuitous route to come back here. And now the record's going to take a circuitous route to the groove. You know, you're not just going to like hit play and then get, get into the voodoo thing anymore. They spend so much time in the studio, apparently just like hanging out a lot of the time. Like, not recording, but sitting on the couch listening to old records, just trying to figure out what the right, like, pocket and vibe and headspace is for laying these tracks down that are already, mm -hmm. like, basically done otherwise. Um, recording of the album was finished at the MSR, Sear Sound, Avatar, and Quad Recording Studios in New York City. That's in addition to Electric Lady, so... He was all over Manhattan. It's quite the budget. <laughs> yeah. He did a big world tour, which he called the, I, I believe the tour was called The Second Coming, which is, Ooh, okay. uh, <laughs> oh boy, you know, that's the kind of uh, chutzpah and bravado that you got to be someone like an artist like D'Angelo to, uh, to interject. But the album is called Black Messiah. So, yeah. you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of commentary there and he felt like it was the right time to do it. So yeah, yeah, yeah. that happened. And then, um. A lot of TV appearances and, mm. you know, now we're, um, you know, we're about halfway to the next record, I would say. Halfway. <laughs> Had to get the train From Potsdam Flats You never knew that that I could do that. We are listening to David Bowie's Incredible, 
Where Are We Now, which came out on his 2013 record, The Next Day. Is it that long ago? I guess so. Well, it was 10 years ago now, but Bowie's also been dead since 2016. Right. Uh, David Bowie released this record in 2013, and it was 10 years ago now, but it had been 10 years since his last release. Technically, it was nine years. Um, His last release was sort of like a live record, so that doesn't really count. The record was called The Reality Tour, and it was just a live concert version of his record, Reality, which came out in 2003. I kind of liked that record, but I could see how it didn't do well at the time. Sort of listening back with like 2020 hindsight ear vision, like I kind of enjoy this this album reality in the the overall narrative of all of Bowie's records. But, you know, let's like call a spade a spade. He had like a pretty bad like 90s and 2000s. The 90s were okay. (laughs) But the thing is, like the reason this is a comeback record is that he pretty much retired. I don't know why, but I do know that the last couple of albums, including this album reality, were like pretty poorly received. I mean, since 1967, Bowie never let three or four years go by without a release. Mm -hmm. That was like close to 40 years worth of musical work, like whether it was, you know, releasing records, recording, touring The Labyrinth, which was, uh, what, 86, 87, 89, something like that. I think 86. So like until 2004, he was working his ass off. And I think he started to kind of lose the recognition for all of that really hard work. And maybe part of it was just like a misguided attempt to cultivate a new personality in the late 90s and early 2000s that was sort of like this digital pop sound, like really kind of clean, glossy, you know, pop, certainly like stadium style music. Which is kind of interesting, right? Because I feel like early 2000s, that is the sound that made money for so many artists. Like that's peak boy band era. (laughs) Totally. And I think in a weird way, like Bowie didn't try to be a boy band necessarily i think he was trying to sort of make a comment on it that's always been his thing like you know find this persona this character or caricature that he can play that says as much about himself as it does about the culture that we live in at any given time or i mean it's just completely abstract and it's like you know how can we make this alien boy who fell to earth or like a goblin king really cut to the heart of the human experience He's interesting, though, because you don't forget that it's him. Like, I'm 100%. much younger than both of you by a couple of years. Like, was it ever really Ziggy Stardust or was it David Bowie as Ziggy Stardust? Well, so that's why I love this particular song and this particular album. In my reading of Bowie's career, and I'm like a huge Bowie fan, I always have been, I think that some characters that he's played, some sort of personalities that he's kind of occupied for the sake of his art have been more successful than others, or they've, Mm. you know, they've reached deeper into his audience's sort of like hearts more than others. However, in all instances, I think that what he's shooting for is to create like an over-the-top kind of character or personality, but that it always references something about himself. And I think what makes this album and why I think it's like one of the most incredible comebacks of all time is that in this particular instance, what I feel when I'm listening to this music and what I think he's shooting for is that he's kind of going back in time and revisiting these eras 
hmm. of his past personas. And in this case, it's really the Berlin trilogy. I mean, it's really like he's going back. I mean, it's in the lyrics, but it's in the sound. You know, he's working with Tony Visconti again, who's a producer who worked on the entire Berlin trilogy. He's going back to this era of his own life, but with a new perspective on it. It's almost like, you know, he's walking through the streets of Berlin and trying to reach out to his younger self and ask the question, like, where are we now? Where do we stand? So for listeners and those of us who, again, are much younger than you by a couple of years, which albums are part of the Berlin Trilogy? It's Low Heroes, which I can talk about in a moment because it references the, the cover art to this record references the Heroes cover art and, and Lodger and this, uh, this record called Lodger. It was like 1976, 1977. I think he did three records in two years, but they all kind of occupied the same like messaging. Hmm similar kind of sound and of course he was living in berlin at the time and that was like a major part of his inspiration and his ethos but yeah so the the cover art for the next day is basically the the heroes cover but the word heroes is crossed out and there's a giant like white box over (laughs) bowie's face and it just says the next day i mean it's like it's both artful and in a weird way lazy I'm not saying that like in a like a in a pejorative way. I think he's trying to sort of like bait journalists, you know, huh. to like putting it down or something. Like I think he's just trying to be like polemical and like, okay, take this. Interesting. But I don't know. I mean, who knows what was going on in his head? Another part of the timeline here is that this was 2013. Like I said, it had been, it had been 10 years since he released a record proper. Nine years since the uh, since the live concert album came out. A lot of people assume that he had retired. I think he retreated from the public life for a bit. He made this album kind of in secret. Maybe a part of it was he didn't want people to know he was making a record so that they wouldn't prejudge the new material based on past Hmm. column failures or, you know, misguided releases or whatever. But as soon as this record came out, very shortly after, he learned that he had liver cancer. And so he started working on the next album, which was called Black Star, with the knowledge that it was basically close to the end. And then the story with Blackstar, I won't go so deep into it, but it came out the day that he died. And that I think was, you know, part of his sort of agreement with everybody involved. And that record Mm -hmm. was also made in secret throughout 2014, 2015. So those two albums are are sort of forever linked in that they're the last two albums. I think they, they kind of represent this general coming back story, like David Bowie reemerging into the public after so many years, but also being so close to the end. And it's just really interesting to me to listen to these songs because I think the songs on the next day and certainly um, Where Are We Now, this track, there's an air of like, you know, he's taking stock. He's like reflecting. He's asking the question like, Mm -hmm. where are we now? Where have we come from? To me, like that's like the ultimate comeback like messaging. It's not simple, simple, but it does reference like an earlier time. Like I think Bowie went into a period of like high digital production in the late 90s and early 2000s and tried to be sort of in the zeitgeist of what music production was sounding like. And this goes back to that kind of like, let's just roll the tapes Mm. type of production and sound. And I think Tony Visconti is a major part of that. To me, when I listen to this song, I mean, I I imagine like he's walking through the streets of Berlin as like a ghost and he's sort of watching himself 
I don't know, act out or do the things that he was doing back in the 70s and 80s and making mistakes and whatever and just sort of like trying to reach out to his former self. I think it's really dramatic and it's really emotional. There's something too, like with the D'Angelo conversation, like both artists knew that they were making a comeback. They knew that this was going to be something special. And I think they eschewed the pressure of doing something big and over the top and instead went with something that felt more comfortable and more familiar. You know, it's like receding into that, like that groove or that kind of old guitar and synth kind of rock sound. By stepping back into their own understanding of their own essence is respectively, they both avoided overt grandiosity in their pursuit and in the process were truer to themselves and ended up making records that were extremely grand because they were such pure expressions of themselves as they understood themselves. As long as there's me As long as there's you Can we just talk about the presence of like a true lead guitar on this track? Because... That is something that I think hasn't fully made a comeback, Obsolete. but is so nice. <laughs> it's almost that Pink Floyd style sound, you know, where like it oh, fills yeah. a role that is, I don't even know what plays that role in today's music. I'm trying to think about it. I guess a synth line might do that or some kind of weird background vocal situation, but tasteful lead guitar that isn't shreddy. Why has that not made a comeback? <laughs> I blame Greta Van Fleet. <laughs> For so yeah. many things. For so many things. I'm just kidding. This I have is, no issues. This is really getting controversial. <laughs> I'm just kidding. I feel like last year or a couple of years ago, there was a there was a, an analysis of um, streaming culture and then the lack of solos. And, uh, you know, mm. like the more people listen to things on playlists, the less time in general people give to decide whether they like a song. And so if you're not going to really wait till two and a half minutes in when the solo comes or whatever then why even have it to begin with, you know, just like start strong and keep it there or something to keep people's attention. But yeah, I I don't know. There's also been maybe not a return of the guitar solo, but I mean, saxophones have had a pretty nice little comeback in the last decade, decade and a half. Midnight City by M83 just climaxes in like an ecstatic sax solo that could easily be a guitar solo. Yeah. Plus like, you know, Kendrick working with George Clinton and Terrace Martin, the influence of jazz on pop or sort of R&B, you know, R&B influence pop and stuff and electronic music is interesting, but it's definitely taken it away from that kind of hard rock thing. But to be honest, it's like, I'm not mad about it. Like, I don't know how many times I've listened to like a pentatonic guitar solo where I'm like, okay, cool. Well done. You did a good job. You can do a thing. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know. I think brass never fully went away. Brass will never die. Like strings. Are we talking about instruments making a comeback <laughs> in a comeback episode? Whoa, weird. Uh, is there anything else you want to talk about on this fantastic song selection, Jeremy? I just don't want it to get slid under the carpet or whatever that expression is. I don't want it to get lost in the conversation. How, like, you need to look at this album cover if you have never seen it. Because it's like Bowie is literally ripping himself off and laughing to all of us about it. And it's just perfect. And I just like in terms of a comeback, I mean, what better way to come back than to just be like, oh, I did a cool thing in 1976. 
And now that it's 2013, I'm just going to like slap that right back on the cover and like and just change a couple little tiny things. Like it's just it's just rad. Um, so we are listening to the 2021 Friday remix by Rebecca Black, featuring 303, Big Frida, and Dorian Electra. I want to start by just saying this is our comeback show, not just our comeback episode. In the past, I have been known in the small little podcast community circle here for picking a lot of classical pieces. <laughs> My highbrow's not gone. I just wanted to establish that. This choice says nothing about what comes next, and I stand behind it in spite of that. How irritated are the two of you at me for choosing this song right now? Not irritated? Thank God. Very intrigued. Yeah, I love it. Had you heard it before? The remix, I mean? Obviously, you've heard the original. I have not heard this, but I was, like, delighted. I mean, it's an interesting group of features to bring together on one track like this, and I'm so glad that it happened. But yeah, Big Frida known for like New Orleans bounce music. 303 has a very specific place in my mind, and it's not a Rebecca Black collaboration. Did you guys watch the music video? Yes. Yes. In the video, there's that reference to A Trip to the Moon, the sci-fi film from 1982. Voyage dans la Lune. Yeah. Say that again. (laughs) Voyage dans la Lune? Yeah. So it's like Voyage in the Moon, even though the English translation is A Trip to the Moon. Yeah. Yeah. So that's nineteen oh two Georges Melier. <laughs> I told you I wasn't done being kinda highbrow on this show. Is that the comeback? Is it a comeback of like early twentieth century <laughs> early like, cinema fo- photographic <laughs> experiments? <Yeah. laughs> and who better than Rebecca Black to make that happen? But yeah, there's a reference to that film in the three oh three feature. We have a face in the moon and a rocket lands in its eye. I don't know why, but I was expecting there to be some sound design around that. Like, because he made a face. I just wanted there to be like a ouch. But I like it that, in a weird way, I like that there wasn't. Like, the music almost takes itself seriously throughout in a way that the video doesn't. Um, But I'm going to play that moment, just the audio. Here it is. Then we transition to another feature. There's the big Frida. And actually, the Dorian Electra one is beautiful. After like the silly auto tune vocals, we get this. We should get into the original song. Obviously, you guys have heard it before. How familiar are you with the lore and the details around the story of Friday? Marty's nodding, Jeremy's shaking yeah. his head, shrugging. I know, maybe. I know how it happened. So February 10th, 2011, Rebecca Black was 13 years old and quickly became wow. like the most cyber bullied individual, I'd say probably of all time. 
she's done interesting things to overcome that. Whereas I feel like I would have just faded into obscurity and not bothered with the music industry ever again, personally. The key thing to know, and I think this is something that a lot of people don't know, is that she did not write this song. A production company gave her a song, recorded her vocals, mixed the track. The first time she heard the track was the day of the music video. She didn't see the finished music video until it was released on the internet. So in terms of creative control, she had basically none. This was not the first song that that group, I think it's just two guys, sent her. The other one was called Superwoman. I don't, I haven't been able to find it and listen to it, but she said that it was about a more grown-up relationship and at 13 she hadn't had one yet, but I kind of wonder if this whole thing would have happened to her and my my guess is no. I think it really was contingent on this overly catchy, nonsensical, quite frankly, poorly written song. <laughs> But yeah, Daniel Tosh featured it on Tosh.0. She looked it up and saw that the plays were just like growing at a massive rate. Yeah, and she started getting some pretty hateful comments fairly immediately. The people who produced it asked her if she wanted them to take it down and she gave it some thought. And at 13 was mature enough to say, no, this is what's happening. I'm going to face it instead of backing down. Wow. Which didn't immediately work out for her, to be honest, but has since. It's such a bad example of the internet and music it's like two dudes that write a song that just get some girl on it and then make a video you know it's like well she paid for it too i think her mom paid four thousand dollars and it was kind of like you know when you're a kid and your mom would take you for like mall photos or like the karaoke videos the sense that i got from watching the interviews is it was like a glorified version of that Hmm. so she paid for this traumatic thing to happen to her that eventually led to a decent career but sorry, go ahead, Jeremy. No, yeah. Well, but just that thing with the music video, you said that like th- there was like a mix and an edit done to the track. She hadn't even heard it. And then she just shows up and it's like done or whatever. I mean, you know, yeah, the Internet connects us. We can collaborate with whoever. But like you are in a weird way subject to like your voice, your content, your creativity being just completely like warped by someone else. And there's really nothing you can do about it. On the back end of it, it's like when something really brilliant does end up happening. And you become susceptible to, you know, the dregs of internet society, co- comment society where everybody just wants to like pile on and I don't know, bring somebody down or something. Yeah, with, make like, fun of a child. I mean, it's just crazy. And yet there's sort of a positive ending to the story. So she <laughs> g- did give it a positive ending and we'll get to that. And she's made it clear that some positive things came out of the experience even at the time. Like, I don't know if you guys remember, but she made a cameo in Katy Perry's video for her song last Friday night. Um, but when you were talking a minute ago, Jeremy, about like giving up control over something and it just like kind of happens, it's interesting because, well, A, the use of autotune on this, on the original track is (laughs) cringy beyond belief. And I'm not sure it was entirely necessary now that I've heard what her voice sounds like without it. I mean, admittedly, I'm sure she's had more training and that kind of thing, but um, she started a YouTube channel when she was 16. She didn't want like managers and people like that involved. She just wanted to share something genuine and real. People, especially people around her age, were super drawn to that authenticity. It's interesting mm. that the music, 
like the musical trauma of losing creative control in that sense and having this thing happen to you informed the decisions she made around her career. How long did it take for the remix to then come? So the remix came out on the 10th anniversary of the original. Mm. I think two days before or something like that, she posted on social media a hint that it was coming. That's awesome. And she did perform the song in the time between that. She did release tracks. But I do think that the remix coming out was kind of this moment that put her back on everybody's radar in a way where she was really taking control of the situation. So Daniel Tosh, to save face, I'm guessing, had her back on his show. (laughs) And she performed the song in studio. Yesterday was Thursday. Today it is Friday. Come on, thank you. We, we, we so excited. We so excited. I don't want this weekend to end. She's really kind of owned this narrative for a long time. That was a couple years ago. And then the decision to do this remix which again, she didn't write the song. And it's weird because the remix like simultaneously just owns what it is, but almost makes fun of it. That auto-tune sound, you don't hear her real voice. You hear this like glitchy, hyper-tuned version of it throughout. It sounds like it's pitched up and it's faster. The chiptune aspect of this song kind of stood out to me. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, you can say what you want about chiptune and stuff, but you don't often hear it necessarily in remixes. I mean, like, mm. something doesn't become a chiptune song. It either elevates from it or it just always is that. Yeah, I wonder which of the collaborators is responsible for that. Well, I feel like one thing Rebecca Black is incredibly attuned to is a very, like, Gen Z approach to a hyper-pop persona, Mm. which incorporates Mm. lots of musical aesthetics, especially currently from like the late 90s and early early 2000s. Same as fashion is now, you know, (laughs) hearkening back to the early 2000s, like giant pants trends and whatnot. You know, there's jungle drum and bass drums throughout. The squirrely aspect of the vocal sampling Mm or at least vocal processing, if not vocal sampling, in addition to the heavy, heavy auto-tune, which is very, very contemporary and hyper-pop. You know, that's, mm-hmm. that's a, actually a very contemporary sound. She's really, really tapped into all of that and has been for a while, which makes the way that she's approaching this particular track and saying like, hey, yeah, when this happened, like I really didn't know anything. I was 13 and other people were sort of using me and my likeness. Now I fucking know what I'm doing and I'm here and I'm here to actually do the thing. Like, it makes a lot of sense that she's using all of these contemporary styles and references, you know? Mm. No, 100%. And even the way, like the length of the features feels so aware of <laughs> like how people consume media now. Mm. They just come and go and you could almost picture like the awards show or whatever performance where these people show up and you cheer and then they're gone. The other thing that I do like about this about this remix is that you get a little more complexity in the form with the addition of those features. You get a little more going on with the harmony. Uh, the original is just that pop progression, the one six minor four or five sound that like most music in Western pop is made up of. It just like sits in that same zone forever. So when we get these features, we get a little a little deviation from that. I might be taking it too seriously here. But uh, yeah, it it elevates the song for me. (laughs) 
You know what you just did, Mahaya, with regards to the the comeback theme is you kind of flipped the script. How so? I think with the first two song choices, there was this idea around like kind of getting to more of like an essence of the artistic integrity that has like always been there. And like mm. maybe the artist has gone astray or deviated from it and then kind of returned and found the love for the original sound or something. And mm. in this case, it's like, I was never really gone, but let's revisit this like early statement and do it in a new way that maybe nobody has ever anticipated before or something. It's almost like she's putting a button on the situation. We're a little rusty, but I think we're back. What do you think? Sweaty palms. I'm just glad it wasn't 10 years before we came back. I know. It's felt like it, though. So there you have it, folks. The first episode of this new season. If you've enjoyed it and want to hear more, don't forget to subscribe via your favorite podcast platform. We'll be back again in two weeks. In the meantime, I recommend checking out some of our earlier episodes. For upcoming theme announcements and other podcast news, follow at Themes Variation on Twitter. We're new to that platform, but we plan to use it more actively moving forward. Thanks so much for listening, and I'll meet you back here on Wednesday, September 13th with our next episode.